Good afternoon and welcome back to Soul to Soul. I'm Rabbi Ari Kiev and it's fabulous to be with you here once again this Thursday afternoon as we are each week, same, ta- same time, same place, same station. And listening to this beautiful song about Raza de Shabbos, the secret of Shabbos, we say it in our prayers on Friday evenings, those who daven the Nusach Ari and other Sephardic Nusach Nuschot. And it's Shabbos again. Could you believe it? Tomorrow evening. And with Shabbos in mind, of course, it's a good time, good opportunity to tap into the Torah reading, the portion of the week, and to look at some of the elements of it. In fact, there's one specific one that I chose to talk about today because it's a question that sometimes arises. And I'm talking here about the religious heretic. And give me a moment to just share with you the perspective I want to talk about. You know, we receive our salaries from our employers based on a contract that we have with them. And that contract usually spells out what the responsibilities are, what we're held accountable for, what we are, what's determined for us to do, and exactly how many hours we have to work each day, each week, each month, when we have our holiday time, how many sick days we could call in, whatever it is, an important clause of any contract is exactly how many hours it demands that we work. Except if you're a rabbi, then it's 24-7-365. That's just the way it is. And imagine, by the way, parents too, and uh, I guess depending on our work, if you own a business, chances are you're also working for it 24-7. But as someone once said, if you enjoy your job, then you'll never have a hard day of work in your life. Now, just imagine if you come to your boss one day, one week, whatever it is, and you say, you know, boss, I love my work. I think 40 hours a week is just not enough for me. Maybe... I'm going to work a little overtime this month, free of charge. I'll put an extra 10 hours. You don't have to pay me. Now, do you think that your boss would be grateful and appreciative that you do that? In fact, reading some works, some books on uh, business expertise, I've read that one of the things that sets the better employees ahead is their commitment to the job, the extra hours they put in, the impression it makes on their employer. Just imagine the boss says, absolutely not. And in fact, any extra hour you work is going to be subtracted from your minimum base hours. And working 10 hours over time is the same as missing 10 hours of regular time. It's going to be deducted. It's going to be ducked from your salary. How would you feel about that? What do you think? You would be angry. Why? You want to give extra hours to the work and they don't even accept it. On the contrary, you work extra, the pay is deducted. And this is something I want to talk about today. What would your reaction be to such a response from your boss? How would you understand it? And to tell you the truth, the reason I mention this is because in the Torah portion that we're going to be reading in our synagogues in the shul this Shabbos, which begins tomorrow evening as we just heard in the song reminding us, we have such a response from God. That's exactly what happens in the Torah portion this week. And I'm going to share how that is in right after this break. How's this is Soul to Soul on 101.9 IFM. Welcome back. I'm Rabbi Ari Kievan. Great being with you here. And the question we asked was, what if you offered your boss to work extra hours for no extra 
pay, the salary stays the same, and he says, or she says, no, absolutely not, and if you do so, I am going to duck pay. It is considered a violation of our work agreement, of our contract. And as I said, I'm going to show you how in this week's Torah portion, the portion of Re'eh that we read this Shabbos, we have exactly that. Now let's just think, to keep it simple, God is our employer. God's the boss. And the Torah is our contract that spells out our responsibilities as Jewish people, our work description to God. And it says, in this week's Torah portion, the beginning of chapter 13, it says, of all the things that I command you, you should be careful to do them. You should not add to it, and you shall not subtract from it. So here we have a very important commandment from our boss. And in fact, this verse has been coined as the rule, the law of Bal Tosif, no adding, which includes, by the way, not subtracting. And it's officially one of the 613 commandments of the Torah. And it appears in other parts of the Torah. In fact, we read it a few weeks ago, Lo Tosifu al Hadavar Eschem. We read it in Parsha Devarim there. Hashem says, not to add from the word which I command you, or to not to diminish, not to subtract from it either. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of why, and that is, you know, worthwhile a discussion, why the Torah mentions it twice, but in fact, there are multiple examples given there by the commentator Rashi who says, you know, what if a person wants to add, we have four parshiot in Sadar Tefillin, what if you add a fifth? This is violating, transgressing the law of Lotos of Baltosif. What if a person decides, you know, we take four species, four special kinds on the holiday of Sukkot, which is around the corner, Ah, I decide I'm going to take five. I'm embellishing. I'm enhancing the mitzvah. Or if I add, I don't like just four corners of my tzitzis. I'm going to add a fifth one. Or something else like that. You add another one. Now, that is, again, in the law of Baal Tosif. Now, the truth is I can understand why we're not supposed to subtract, why we, why that's considered diminishing from the mitzvahs. Because, you know, God gave us 613 commandments and he wants us to keep all of them. Even though, practically speaking, if we don't live in Israel and if we're a man, we can't be, keep all six. If we're a woman, we, you know, the only way you could actually keep all the 613 commandments probably is if you are both man and woman together living in the land of Israel. You're both a Kohen, you're the Kohen Gadol, you are, you know, if you're everything, which is impossible. But the point is that we are meant to keep as many of the mitzvahs as we can, and we're not supposed to subtract from it. We're not supposed to reform and reshape our Judaism. So we can't say that, you know, I think thou shalt not steal has expired, or maybe it's been temporarily lifted. That's not... We understand. But the question I have is, why can't we add? What is wrong with enhancing my mitzvah observance? What does it bother God if somebody wants to be more religious? You know, I know somebody... He is so religious, he likes to bring in Shabbos on Tuesday. Or he likes to keep two days of Shabbos rather than just one. So what's wrong with that? What's wrong with him wearing a five-cornered tzitzis garment, like Rashi describes, giving an example or wrapping to fill in both arms? What's the problem if someone wants to add something? What is he doing wrong? You're enhancing, you're making God's commandments even more sophisticated and special. You're adding to it. Why doesn't God allow us to add to the mitzvahs? And not only that, like we said, it's sort of said like the boss was docking your pay. He says, 
Almighty God says, it is prohibited. You're not allowed to do it. So in our portion, which is rich with all these mitzvahs, in fact, there's the portion of Re'eh contains 55 mitzvahs. And there's 17 positive mitzvah taseh and 38 negative commands mitzvah, mitzvah lo taseh. And yet this mitzvah is possibly one of the most intriguing of the mitzvahs in our parsha that you cannot add nor subtract. And the Gemara very, you know, seems to succinctly sum it up. And the Gemara says, Shekol HaMoisif Gorea. Any person who adds actually subtracts. Or maybe you can understand it as if you come to add to the mitzvahs, well, you know, I added a couple of mitzvahs here and I added a couple of mitzvahs there. Nothing wrong if I subtract some as well. If you think you could add, then you'll most likely end up subtracting somewhere down the line. And so many of the halachic thinkers and great sages throughout Jewish history have talked about this and discussed this mitzvah. And basically, according to Maimonides, Rambam, in his Guide for the Perplexed, the Moran Avuchim, it talks about this and says that when we tamper with the divine code, we're eventually going to lead to forget its divinity. Because if I could add, why can't I subtract? Ultimately, it leads people to take matters into their own hands and decide, well, I must, I choose which mitzvahs I like. I'm selective about the mitzvahs I like. Oh, and you know, I can make up for it by adding some other mitzvahs, but that's not the way it goes. And the truth is, I'm sure you've seen in other aspects of life that people have done this type of thing. You know, you choose things, you add things, you subtract things, you do as you wish. The Sefer Achinuch describes how God's system is a holistic one. It's God's. It's perfected by the Almighty. And it's not something we should be tampering with, not to subtract. And he says certainly not to add either. And that's why the mitzvah, this command, is baltosif. It's a negative command. Not allowed to even add to the mitzvahs. And it's very interesting how this is discussed in quite, quite length within halacha. And, you know, actually, I'd love to share with you a beautiful story. And I read this story in the Gutnik Chumash. It's a great Chumash to use because it gives you the the Torah with some beautiful commentaries and makes it very practical and relevant with wonderful teachings from the, the teachings of the Rebbe and other great Jewish thinkers and leaders. And firstly, before going into the metaphor that I read from the Gutnik Chumash, which comes from the Dubna Magat, just to give the, you know, Aimer Dover B'Shem Omer, when we quote something from the person, from where we read it, or from the person we heard it from, it says, maybe we're bringing redemption to the world. Well, I didn't just read it in the Gutna Chumash, and the Gutna Chumash is, it's quoted as a beautiful metaphor taught by the Dubna Magid, Rabbi Yaakov Kranz, who lived about, I don't know, 200 years ago or so. But he gave a beautiful metaphor to describe this. But actually, he was describing a law written by Rambam in Mishnah Torah, the laws of Shechita, ritual slaughter. And there, the Rambam gives an interesting explanation. It says, basically, that, you know, when it comes to our to animal sacrifices, we say an animal has to be Tamim, it has to be complete, it has to be without any blemish. And it's described that any perforation, any kind of problem with the animal. Now a problem is not just a cut, a laceration, a broken limb. 
actually, for whatever reason, an animal that has something additional, if it has an extra organ, an extra limb, it's actually not considered complete. It's considered lacking. It is considered as if it's got a mum, an actual blemish, even though you would say, hold on, but this animal has an extra organ. And maybe it's, you know, imagine someone has two hearts. You would think that their body has better functionality. Two hearts, it's a much stronger engine. But on the contrary, we wouldn't consider that person very healthy, I don't think. And this is a wonderful metaphor that the Dubna Magad uses to explain this concept. And he says, you know, Moshe came to his neighbor, Chaim. He says, would you mind if I borrow a silver spoon? I'll give it back in two days. I just have some guests tonight. Of course, the neighbor lent it to Moshe. Not a problem. But the next day, Moshe comes back and he gives him back two spoons, one bigger than the other. Chaim looks at Moshe and says, what's this? My high, what's this about? So, well, after he gave me the spoon, you know, got pregnant, it gave birth. So I have to give you both the mama spoon and the baby spoon. Wow. If that's the case, <laughs> that's amazing. Chaim wishes him a mazel tov. Congratulations. Thank you, Marsha. Unbelievable. I've never seen the spoon give birth before, but if you say so, I'll accept this. This is fantastic. This is wonderful. A few days later, Marsha comes. He needs to borrow a, a copper pot for big chicken soup as my his wife is making for Shabbos. So Chaim gives it to him without a problem, with tremendous joy. And of course, after Shabbos, Moshe came back. And not only was there the copper pot that he was returning from the chicken soup, but it even gave birth to a little baby pot. And once again, Chaim is elated to see that it's given birth. It's unbelievable. I didn't know that the pot was pregnant when I gave it to you. But big Yashakoyach, thank you. Wow, incredible. And when Moshe came the following week and asked him if he could borrow something else, he says, can I borrow your silver menorah, perhaps? Chaim was only too quick. Ooh, was he excited to hand it over. Who knows what I'm going to get next week, a, a baby silver menorah. And a week goes by, two weeks goes by. He's thinking maybe it's a longer pregnancy. Maybe when I gave the pot and the spoon, they were already in the ninth month. But perhaps now, maybe it's early on in the pregnancy. But... Time is flying by. It's already nine, ten months. It's almost Purim. There's no sign of Moshe or the silver menorah. So finally, he sees Moshe at the hypermarket. And he says, hey, Moshe, what's going on? Where's my menorah? It's already been nine, ten months. I mean, surely should have given birth by now. Where's my menorah? Moshe looks and says, oh, I'm so sorry. I forgot to tell you, I thought you would have read it on the Chev's website or heard it on the Morning Mayhem show. But did you not know that uh, the menorah, terrible thing, a terrible tragedy happened, <sighs> passed away, Baruch Dayana Ameta. So sorry, I thought that you got the condolences and, and heard it on, on the Morning Mayhem when they announced the, the Chev burials, the funerals in the mornings. In fact, I, I'm sure the unveiling already happened. And, of course, you can imagine Chaim looking at him and says, Excuse me? What do you mean my menorah died? Whoever heard of a menorah dying? And with that, Moshe looks at him very quickly and replies, Well, if you believe me that a spoon gave birth and a copper pot had a baby, why are you so troubled that your menorah died? And 
the point, the metaphor that the Dubna Magid, which I think is self-explanatory, he's telling us is when God gave us the Torah, God gave us a precise prescription for a perfect, peaceful, and pleasant life. God knows. He's a creator. God knows the master plan for this world. And once we think we could take control of the wheel and start turning it, even in the direction of more mitzvahs, then there's a fundamental perspective shift. No longer is it God's Torah, but becomes our personal Torah. We do with it what we want. One of my other famous stories that I often share is about the fellow who buys a suit for Shabbos. He goes into Stadah for Zalav Shalom. And, you know, he's had a big sale happening there. After 159 years, they were going out of business. And he buys the suit. But if you went to the Stutterford sale, you know, you couldn't be exactly picky with what size suit you were going to get. You had to take what was available. And this fellow, he took a suit that was a little big on him. Just the trousers, the jacket fit fine. So he comes home. He looks at his wife. He says, honey, darling, how do you like this beautiful suit I bought today at Stutterford? They're going out of business. I had to take whatever size was available. She looks at him. She says, hey, my shlomil, my shlamazel, look at you. The pants are a little too baggy, a little too long. He says, sweetie, you know, I'm sure you're capable. I've seen you do this before for the kinderlach. Can't you perhaps take it in a little bit? Maybe sew a nice little hem, a cuff at the bottom of the pants. All you got to do is take off of a few centimeters. She says, darling... My husband, as much as I love you, it's Thursday. I have to get the house ready for Shabbos. I'm not such a kugel. You know what kugels do for Shabbos dinner? They order in. I have to cook. I have to schlep. I have to clean. I have to prepare. It takes time. I don't think I'm going to have this all ready for you. This all the meals for Shabbos and to not do your pants tonight. Next week, darling. He looks at his eldest daughter. He says, sweetheart, won't you do your daddy a favor? I know I sent you for one of the extra murals with sewing lessons. Maybe you could take the pants in a little bit and trim it on the bottom. Can't you do your daddy a little favor? And she says, Dad, I would love to, but tonight we have the matric dance and the next kid has another event and each one has a function, a party, something they have to attend. Everyone has important events, but nobody could take care of their daddy. So he says, okay, fine. No suit is no suit. He goes to bed and he registers his mind. He won't have the suit for the Shabbos. So I next Shabbos. But you know, some of us men, we need that instant gratification. That's the day and age we live in. We need things done. We need it now. I come from the New York where we have a serenity prayer. Dear God, I want patience and I want it now. This fellow, he thinks to himself, he's twisting and turning and somnia steeps in. He says, I could do this myself. Goes into the kitchen, picks up a pair of scissors his wife uses to cut the flesh. And he begins to trim the pants. He's thinking he's going to make a nice little hem, a little cuff there at the bottom. Now he could go to sleep. Amachaya. He could rest assured he has a nice good suit for Shabbos. He did it himself. He doesn't have to rely on anyone's favors. Tuminish kentavis, as they say. And he goes to sleep. And you can imagine he had a great good schluff. He's not twisting and turning anymore. He knows he could wear these pants for Shabbos. Aye, there's a little bit of thread sticking out. It's not cut very neatly. Skew. Big deal. In the meantime, his wife finishes the cooking and the cleaning. She thinks, you know, my husband, he's a good guy. He doesn't even, he hardly asks me to do anything. Let me do him a favor. And she goes to the sewing machine. She measures three centimeters 
And as she does exactly a beautiful hem, a cuff she makes at the bottom. And now we, she says, ah, my husband will be so proud and happy. He has beautiful slacks, trousers to wear for Shabbos. In the meantime, the daughter comes back from a trick dance. She thinks, what do I need to ask daddy for? Oh, I want to go on our, on our encounter trip soon. I need daddy to pay for it. Well, maybe I should do daddy a favor. She picks up the pants. She measures three centimeters and she does a beautiful hem at the bottom of the pants. The next kid comes back from their function. Each one comes back and says, ah, poor daddy always does for us anything we ask him. I'm going to do daddy the favor. And each one cuts another three centimeters. By the time he woke up in the morning and decides to show off these pants, they were shorts ready to run in the morning and his jog and forget about having pants for Shabbos for his beautiful new suit. This was a very custom suit, as you can imagine. And of course, the metaphor is describing what we oftentimes tend to do. We cut a little here, we cut a little there, but before we know it, we've reformed, we've changed it so much that it hardly reflects, it hardly in any way resembles what Yiddishkeit, what Judaism should look like. And the message, of course, is once we think we could take control, we could add a little to the Torah, we could subtract, all of a sudden, we, we're just giving birth to new mitzvahs. We want to see... Yeah, the other mitzvahs we want to add to the list and what's too difficult just dies. We cut a little here, we cut a little there. And it's for this reason that we have a command in this week's portion, Baal Tosif. Don't add to the commandments that I give you, don't subtract from it, as the Talmud says, because by adding, it's going to lead to subtracting. And the question I leave you to think about now as we go off for our next market run is is it possible, do you think it's possible to enhance something without gaining a feeling of ownership over the matter? You know, if you add to it, do you not feel that you have the right to subtract from it? We all know many people, once they join the shul committees, they have all of a sudden this entitlement feeling, I'm on the committee, so I'm after all entitled to do this, that, and the other. Do you feel that it's possible that one could add without subtracting? I'd love to hear your comments, your thoughts. Feel free to send a message here into the studio. You could send an SMS to 34519, or you could even send a WhatsApp. Do you know our WhatsApp number? If you don't, take the second, pull out your phone. If you're driving, either pull to the side of the road or try to remember it, 062-148-2374. WhatsApps are absolutely free. And you could send your message here into the studio. And I'd love to hear your thoughts, your opinion, your reflection on this law, Baltosif. Is it possible that by adding, you won't come to subtracting? We'll talk more about that as we're back right after these messages. This is Soul to Soul on 101.9 FM. Welcome back. I'm Rabbi Ari Keatman. And we've been talking here today about adding or subtracting from the commandments. We have this mitzvah in our Torah portion this week, Baal Tosif, not to add to the commandments of the Torah. And now I would like to turn to one of the famous biblical stories, and we're going to see how this mistake was made very early on in history, and we know that it had grave ramifications. And do you know which story I'm talking about? Perhaps the best-known example of how adding to the Torah leads to trouble are the words that Chava, Eve, said in the Garden of Eden when that snaky serpent tried to seduce her to eat the forbidden fruit. I'm sure you know that story from long ago. And remember, originally when God instructed Adam and Eve regarding what they were allowed to eat, Hashem said, of the 
tree of knowledge of good and evil, you should not eat. In fact, the verse says that of all the trees here, you could eat, enjoy. Just one tree not to eat from. But when the serpent approached Eve and started a little conversation about that forbidden tree, the serpent asked her, what exactly did God tell you about the tree? And the first tells us, chapter 3, verse 3 in Genesis, Beratius, she repeated what God said, but she added one word. She added the word. She said, you should not eat of it, and you should not touch it, lest you die. Now, that's it. At that point, the serpent knew that he had Eve in his sneer. Just imagine. God said, don't eat. But she added one little clause, don't touch. With that little addition, that's where she met her downfall. And the Medrash describes the incident, the episode of what happened there that time. And the Medrash says that the serpent pushed. Now remember, the serpent back then had a bigger body. According to the Medrash, the serpent, uh, not just the Medrash, the Torah says that as a punishment for what the serpent did here, that's why it said it's going to have to crawl on its stomach. So the serpent probably had a little more balance and power to push Eve Push Chava onto the tree. And what happened? Nada. Nothing. Zilch. Garnished. Nothing happened. Said the serpent to Eve. Ha! You see you didn't die. Well, what bad could happen if you eat from the tree? Now we know what bad happened. The serpent was punished. That it had to start now walking on its stomach. And Eve was punished, and Adam, and they were, they were vanished, they were expelled, they were evicted from the Garden of Eden. And of course, to this very day, we suffer the consequences of that great sin, or grave sin. All that happened there was one additional word, and oive, disastrous results. So, here we see that by adding, it came to subtracting too. Very clearly we see that. Now, that addition wound up becoming a subtraction. I'm sure many of you, probably everyone's familiar with the famous artwork, for example, the Mona Lisa painted 500 years ago in Florence, Italy, by the great Italian artist Leonardo da Vinci. It's one of the most famous paintings ever. And in 1956, there was an incident that happened at the Louvre Museum in Paris. What happened was that there was an act of vandalism where one individual came and threw acid, they doused acid onto the painting and that damaged the Mona Lisa. And not only that, sometime later that year, a Bolivian fellow also damaged the painting by throwing a rock at it. Now, 
these acts of vandalism, they resulted in change and in, in work and damage toward the art. This damage, since then actually, they've put a bulletproof uh, protection glass that shields the Mona Lisa. But what is your reaction? What's your feeling about someone who vandalizes such a perfect, famous painting such as the Mona Lisa? Now, of course, we can't accept somebody vandalizing, hurting, breaking, subtracting from such a great painting. But how about if an artist would decide, no, we're not going to, God forbid, ruin, wreck, vandalize the painting as was done back then, 1956? How about if an artist would just add a little bit to the Mona Lisa? Maybe just replace the Mona Lisa's nose with something more creative, something more attractive. You know, today's designs of plastic surgery, there's different appearances that are more attractive. Back in the day, most attractive was a nice, big, obese, you know, zestic woman. Today, you know, beauty's in the eyes of the beholder, but the models, the idols, the way they portray them on TV are... Everyone has to be toothpicks. That's the way they try to portray it. What if someone decided to just change the Mona Lisa, put a cigarette, a pipe in his mouth? I think actually somebody did do that. There was a painting made of the Mona Lisa with a pipe in the mouth or glasses on her nose or a hat on her head. What if somebody tried to do these kind of things? And there were many parodies made of the Mona Lisa. Goatee, a mustache. Now, those artists who have done those things, their work never appreciated in value. There was no great appreciation in the value of a enhanced Mona Lisa. We obviously realize that adding to the Mona Lisa is just as bad as vandalizing, as subtracting, as breaking it. Why is that? And the reason, of course, is because it's art. You can't alter the art. You don't update it. Yes, this painting was done 500 years ago. Who knows? I don't know exactly, but I know that it's centuries old. And if you do mess with Da Vinci's art, then it's no longer Da Vinci's art. Art is about the soul. It's Da Vinci's imagination, the inner world of the artist manifesting itself on the canvas, on on the paper. It's not about one individual line, one brush here or there, a you or shade in this or that corner. Art is one cohesive organism, and that reflects the inner heart, the mind of the artist. If one adds or takes away even one detail of the Mona Lisa, what's happening is it's no longer Da Vinci's art. It becomes something else completely. It becomes your art, perhaps. Any of those artists who did that, and their art, I don't think, was near, nearly worth any value like Mono, like Da Vinci's. And if you think about this, if it's true with regards to artwork of a mere mortal human being, then how much more so, surely, in regards to the artwork of God, of the Torah. You see, 
when people talk about Torah, what is Torah? Some say it's law, others say it's history, others define it as supreme literature, others see it as a book of philosophy, a work of great ethics. And while that's all true, but the Torah is God's artwork. It's God's blueprint for the creation of our world. And you know, at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, where it says, God says, I'm the Lord your God. Many ask, in Hebrew, to say I am, you would say Ani. Why Anochi? In fact, Anochi is a Greek word. Uh, sorry, it's an Egyptian word. So why does God use a word from the Egyptian dialect when in fact God was taking the Jews out of Egypt, out of the idolatry that they were steeped in there? And one of the beautiful answers that our sages tell us is that the word Anochi actually is made up of four letters, which is an acronym of a very, or the Russia Tavis, the, the beginning letters, the acronym of a very important expression. Ano, nafshi, ksavis, yahavis. Four words there. And those four words, the first letter of each one spells the word anochi, I am. And those four letters, I'm your God, but they're an acronym for ano, nafshi, ksavis, yahavis, which means, I have taken my soul. And I have given it to you. I have inscribed myself in this Torah. And the Torah was saying is God's soul on paper. God's imagination right there on the parchment that we read from the Torah. It's God's inner mind and persona. And that's reflected inside the Torah. And so, as the Medrash puts it, when you're reading a book, you read Shakespeare, you very much connect with the soul of the author with Shakespeare, with Aristotle, whoever the author is, you are connecting with them in their writings. And when you study the Torah, you are connecting with the author of the Torah, with Almighty God. And so just think about it now. Imagine when it comes to the Mona Lisa created by a human Italian artist, by Da Vinci. No sane human being would entertain the idea of adding or subtracting from the portrait. We understand that it diminishes it even if you add to it you are changing Da Vinci's intended artwork. Is it not clear then to our own minds? The very thought of changing, of adding even to the Torah, is tampering with it, tampering with God's blueprint for the entire world? And once we understand that, then we can understand that when we add or subtract to any of God's teachings, we're doing Exactly that. And I want to just take one other important law that we study. In fact, in the Torah portion of this week, we talk about the karbanas, the various sacrifices that one offers. And you go back to the book of Leviticus of Ayikra, where it talks in greater detail. In this week's portion, we describe the festivals, the holidays. But in Leviticus, it talks about it in much greater detail. And there it talks about a few different types of sacrifices if a person committed a sin. And especially in this period where we're only five weeks to Rosh Hashanah. Well, with five weeks to the high holidays, it's time to start thinking about atonement. In temple times, a person would be obligated to bring certain sacrifices. If a person committed a sin, let's say an advertent sin, a shogeg, so then they had to bring what was called a korban chatas. They had to offer a sin sacrifice, a korban chatas. For other types of sins, there was 
an offering called the Karban Asham, a guilt offering. Now, what if a person isn't sure if they committed a certain sin? Are they still obligated? You know, do I still have to offer a sacrifice? I'm not sure if I committed a sin or not. You know, I'm not certain. Did I? Didn't I? If the Torah describes it's called Asham Talui. Now, I don't have all the time here to explain to you the Asham Talui. But what I do want to tell you is that the Asham Talui is a much more expensive sacrifice than your ordinary carbon chatas. And the reason is because the person who's not sure if they committed a sin is somewhat in a worse place. That's what I want to say, is when I subtract, and I know I'm diminishing from the Torah, I know I'm detracting from the Torah's laws, but when I'm adding, I have this feeling within myself that, you know, there's something good about what I'm doing. I'm embellishing, I'm enhancing the Torah. And people justify that it's okay with what they're doing. And this is what our sages tell us is in a sense even worse than subtracting from the Torah. Many people throughout the generations have attempted to alter the Torah, to make changes to it. And they argued, you know, if only God would have known how sanitary the food conditions would be today. Well, we walk into some places not that sanitary. But anyways, maybe kosher laws would be a little different. And if God knew how tasty it was and how expensive kosher was, I'm sure God would have made some kind of, you know, suspended some of the kosher laws or maybe at least bent it and compromised a little bit. And maybe if God would have known how easy it is today to start a fire, not as complicated as it once was, maybe it would have been okay to turn the key in my car on Shabbos. Maybe things would be different. And you could keep on thinking about the different ways, use your imagination about how we could possibly change the Torah and adapt it to be a little more palatable to today's day and age. But, in a sense, if one thinks that adding to the mitzvahs, trying to change things, it's quite dangerous. Because we know, although it looks more righteous, more religious to be adding, but it is actually as we all know, very dangerous. So let's remember who's behind the Torah. It's God in the text. And it's his values that we breathe throughout the Torah. And God is above time and true forever. God's aware of electricity and relationships and all the other things that we think that we might be very clever and smart about. And I think the message we all have to apply in our own minds for today is just like we don't subtract from the Torah. Don't add because that is even going to add a, that's even going to land us in an even deeper hole. This, I think, is a very important message to each of us as we go into the special Shabbos Mavorchim, Shabbos which we bless the upcoming month of Elul, a time to just reflect and focus on the past 11 months of the year that's gone by and think about what have we done? What have we subtracted? And how we don't have to add to the Torah to be better Jews. We just have to do what we got to do and give it our best. My dear friends, I wish you all a wonderful, meaningful, purposeful Shabbos and look forward to joining you here once again. Please, God, next week, same time, same place, same station, right here, 101.9 High FM.